Open up, if you would, this morning, please, to Isaiah chapter 52. We are in our uh, third week of this Advent series, seven weeks of Advent leading to the the birth of Christ and the coming of Christ our Savior. And uh, today, well, two weeks ago, we did that God created mankind, created Adam and Eve to be in his image, to bear his image and to, to glorify him in the earth. And then last week, we talked about how sin entered in and sin was going to ruin those things, but we know that Christ was sent to rescue us. Today we are talking about prophecy, the Old Testament prophecy. And it's interesting, a lot of times when people think about prophecy, uh, they think about the second coming of Christ. And a lot of times sermons about prophecy are dealing with Jesus coming again. But most of the prophecy in the Old Testament deals with Jesus coming the first time. And if we were going to spend... Well, we could spend months and months and months going through all the prophecy of the Old Testament. One, I'm not smart enough to probably deal with all of that. And two, that is just a really, really long sermon series. And so we're going to try in the next 35 minutes to give us a little bit of an idea of of what the prophecy in the Old Testament foreshadowing Christ is all about. And I invite you, if you have questions, to, to come and hang out with us on Wednesday night. We'll go into a little bit more detail on Wednesday night. But the other thing that you can do is just corner me somewhere, you know, or shoot me a text or find me on Facebook, uh, stand outside of our house, uh, you know, with signs or something like that and say, hey, here's my question. Knock on our door. Uh, Just not too early in the morning. I'm not an early morning person. I mean, like 630 is about as early as I do. And I, I just can't do much earlier than that. And so but usually we're up, and so if you, if you have a question, just reach out to us and talk to us. Here's what our theology is today. Our theology is God promised and foretold of the Savior he would send. That's our theology. God promised and foretold of the Savior that he would send. Our application today is this. We can trust that Jesus is the promised Savior. We can trust that Jesus is the promised Savior. And then our prayer today is, God, we thank you for the salvation you provide in Christ. When we think about God being, uh, God promising and foretelling of the Savior he'd send, when it's, not, it's not a foreign concept to the Jew. Those who were Jews who grew up uh, in, in Israel, they knew that God was going to send a Savior. They knew that God was going to provide for them uh, someone who would redeem them and rescue them and ransom them. Their expectation was more of an earthly king, somebody who would sit on a throne have maybe a sword and get rid of Rome. But the idea was that the Jews were looking for a king and they were expecting one and God had promised one. In fact, one of the things, one of my favorite things to do, uh, five and a half, six years ago, we did a series on Matthew. It took us a little over a year, maybe a year and a half to go through the book of Matthew. But one of my favorite things about Matthew is in the beginning eight chapters of Matthew and then the the last four chapters of Matthew, you find this phrase repeated over and over and over again. it will say, according to the scriptures, or as it said in the scriptures. And the reason that it does that is to show that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, according to the scriptures, and that Jesus was raised in Nazareth, according to the scriptures, and that Jesus performed miracles, according to the scriptures. And the reason that it does that is it wants the Jewish audience, those that Jesus is living among, it, it wants them to know and understand that Jesus was the promised Savior. There's all these Old Testament texts that talk about and foreshadow the coming Savior, and Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. In fact, you might remember that when Jesus was on the cross, at the beginning, Jesus is on the cross, and they offer him sour wine mixed with gall. 
It was a, a numbing agent, and Jesus refused to drink it. And then later, while Jesus is on the cross, he then says, I thirst, and they had lifted up a sponge of wine to him to drink. And the Bible even prophesies that. It says that they gave him wine mixed with gall, and that they gave him bitter wine for his drink. It talks about both types. Like everything that Jesus did, even the phrases that Jesus speaks from the cross are part of Old Testament prophecies. All this stuff in the scripture, Jesus, Jesus was calculated. In fact, uh, the disciples are worried about him about to die. They, they know he's going to be arrested. And he goes, listen, he goes, don't you know, I could call 12 legions of angels. This is him being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. I could call 12 legions of angels, and my father would send them and rescue me from this. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that said it had to happen this way? I wish we would start thinking of Jesus, uh, obviously as God, but like, but beyond that, as this guy who every step he did was calculated to fulfill the scripture, to fulfill what the Bible had said the Savior was going to be like. Pick up with me, if you would, in Isaiah 52, and I'm going to start in verse 13. And I'm just going to, I'm going to read these first three verses here, and then we'll, we'll talk about them for a second. Because we're going to read 15 verses in total, and I want you to see how this is a picture of Christ from from really from his, his childhood all the way through his return, his second coming. But look, listen to these first three verses here that we're going to look at. Psalm 52, not Psalm, Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human likeness and his form beyond the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. These are, these are very beautiful verses, great verses. And one of the things that I love here, notice this is talking about, uh, this is talking about the, the Savior. This is talking about the Redeemer of mankind who's going to come. And verse 13, God says through the prophet Isaiah, My servant will act wisely and be high and lifted up. When we talk about people being high and lifted up in our culture today, we usually talk about their reputation. We talk about kind of their status in the culture or their status in society. Man, this person's elevated. This person's high and lifted up. That's not what this text means. In fact, in the book of John, Jesus says, if I be high and lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And it, the Bible says this was to indicate the kind of death he was going to die. So when this text says that my servant will be wise, that my servant will be high and lifted up and will be exalted, it is speaking literally that he will be high and lifted up, that he will be raised up on the cross, that he will be literally exalted above mankind, that, his, that he will be raised up in that way. And then it says this in verse 14, Isaiah the prophet, through uh, God speaking through Isaiah the prophet to Israel says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human likeness and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. So the servant, the, the servant that's going to be high and lifted up, his appearance is going to be so marred that he won't even be recognizable. Like you won't be able to tell who he was. We know that on the, the last night of the life of Christ, we know that he was arrested and we know that the soldiers treated him brutally. We know that they beat him. They struck him with their fists. They struck him with their palms. And they would say to him, if you're a prophet, tell us who it is that's hitting you. We also know that the soldiers took a crown of thorns and put it up on Christ's head. And then they took a stick. They took turns with sticks and they beat him over the head where this crown of thorns was. We also know that after that, 
they, um, they took the cat of nine tails, uh, a whip with nine different ends on it, and braided into the whip were traditionally pieces of stone or pieces of bone, stuff like that. And it would grab and it would, it would catch the body. And so they would, the, the Jewish law says you can't give more than 40 lashes. That's the Jewish law. You can't give more than 40 lashes. And so a lot of times, it's only mentioned a few times in the scriptures, but what you'll see is they were given the 40 lashes minus one. And so they would, they would stop counting at 39 in case they had miscounted. They didn't want to go over 40. And so Jesus's back was laid bare and his skin was hanging off of him and his face is beaten. And, the, and, and so the Bible tells us that this servant of God, the savior of the world, will be high and lifted up on the cross will be exalted, and that his appearance will be so marred you won't even recognize who he is. You wouldn't be able to pick him out uh, of your friends, or uh, you wouldn't be able to tell who he was. And then, and then this, verse 15, 52, 15. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, this is a really interesting verse, and I love it so, so much. Because this verse means that you and I get to be included in the story. That's what this verse means. Now, we, we don't really understand it, but the Jews, it's hard for, like, I, I wouldn't be able to adequately make us, like, get it probably in just a few minutes. But the Jews didn't like anybody that wasn't a Jew. The Jews believed that God was for them. The Jews believed God's promises were for them. The Jews believed that the Savior was only going to be for them. The Jews' mindset was, it's us versus them, and God is not for you, and the Savior's not for you, and salvation's not for you. And then Isaiah, the prophet, says this, the servant who is high and lifted up, the servant whose appearance is so marred beyond human likeness, that servant will sprinkle, will anoint many nations. So now there's nations. It's this idea that the other nations are going to reap the benefit of the Savior who is high and lifted up. And it says, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, that which they have not heard they understood. So here's the, here's the point. You have these other nations, these other kingdoms who are serving idols, who are bowing down to statues, who are making sacrifices to false gods. And it's saying this. He's saying that these nations who hadn't been told of the Savior, who had never heard of the Savior, will come to believe in the Savior. That's great news. Paul, uh, who was one of the ministers in, in the book of Acts who traveled and preached all over, Peter, James, John, these guys, Silas, Timothy, these people who were traveling, Barnabas was one, uh, these guys who were traveling around and preaching in these pagan cultures who didn't walk with Jesus, who didn't watch Jesus grow up among them, who didn't see Jesus die on the cross, these nations who didn't behold Jesus with their eyes were coming to believe. And in fact, these nations were coming to believe ahead of the Jews. We see that in the New Testament, that the other nations, these, these pagan nations were more quick to believe the gospel. We're more quick to believe in Jesus than the Jews were. And so he says here, Isaiah says here, the servant of God, the wise servant will be lifted up, will be marred beyond description, and that the nations will believe in him. Now, I don't remember exactly when it was. I want to say that it was like 400 or 500 years ago that verses and chapter headings were added and I will tell you, it makes it a lot easier to find places. Can you imagine if we were still like working off of scrolls, right? And I said, okay, everybody get the scroll of Isaiah. I'd have to tell you a week ahead of time. 
you know, so you could bring your appropriate scroll. And then I'd say, find this place in Isaiah. <laughs> yes, that was the old days. And then, then I'd say, find this place. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Good luck. You know, like I would just, that's how it would go. And you'd be scrolling and scrolling. And, and so now we get to say, turn to Isaiah 52, 13. Makes it a lot easier, right? The, the problem with that is typically when we get to the end of a chapter, we kind of feel like we're done. We kind of feel like, okay, that's, that thought's over. And here's another thought. And and it's while the verses and the chapters are helpful for finding a place, they're not necessarily—they are not necessarily helpful for understanding the text. And so, what Isaiah has just said is, this servant that's going to be high and lifted up, this servant whose appearance is going to be so marred you can't recognize him, this servant is going to sprinkle many nations, and that the nations of these and these kings are going to believe him and are going to believe in him, and then listen to what. <coughs> Excuse me. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 1. He says, but who has believed our report or who has believed what he heard from us? So this is, this is Isaiah here saying the servant's going to be high and lifted up. The servant is going to be marred beyond description. The servant is going to be believed on by the nations. But who here among the Israelites, who of you, Isaiah says, are believing my report? In other words, the Israelites were not believing in the Savior. They weren't going to receive him. They were going to reject him. And so there's this contrast between the end of chapter 52 and the beginning of chapter 53. These nations are going to believe, but the people of God, the Israelites, did not believe. The Israelites are not believing. So he says this, Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And now he's going to talk about Jesus' childhood. So Isaiah 53 deals with Jesus' childhood all the way to Jesus' second coming. That's why I picked this text, because there are hundreds of Old Testament texts we could have looked at that prophesied Christ, but there are just so many of them. And so this one kind of sums up all of it, sums up the cross, sums up the entire life of Jesus. For he, the servant, the high and lifted up one, the one whose appearance was going to be marred, for he, that's Jesus, grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. The the people will occasionally say the Bible never describes what Jesus looks like. This is actually the closest we get, 53 verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, he wasn't a handsome man. So if you grew up in a church like I did where there was like Jesus art, you know, uh, in, in your Sunday school class, he was typically white with blue eyes and like uh, the P- Pantene Pro-V hair could have been in a commercial, you know, and shaking it like that, you know, and, and like maybe your first crush ever was on Jesus in your Sunday school class, you know, like, man, like Jesus, you know, he's looking pretty good, you know. Your mom's like, I want you to meet a guy like that one day. Uh, whatever, it, whatever it is, uh, that's not how Jesus looked. Jesus was very plain. Jesus was very ordinary. Jesus was uh, nondescript. So, like, if you, were, if you hadn't seen him heal, I, I can imagine, right? Like, I can imagine him healing somebody, raising the dead, whatever, and the crowds are gathering. They're like, which one's Jesus? And the guy's like, I don't know. <laughs> it, it was one of those. Oh, it might have been him, but it could have been any of those guys. Like, it, it, it wasn't like he had this, like, aura about him, you know, like in all the Renaissance paintings where it's just kind of this, like, golden halo of light. He was just plain. 
And so the Bible says that Jesus was just plain. He didn't. He had no former majesty. He didn't look like a king. Uh, he wasn't. <laughs> there's this. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's too random. Never mind. Jesus. Jesus just looks normal. He just looks normal. But here's how they were. Here's how they treated him. Look at verse three, fifty-three, three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one who men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus wasn't, wasn't considered of high value. He wasn't esteemed by men. We, we make the mistake sometimes, I think, of watching movies like the Jesus film or whatever, and we see these huge crowds following Jesus, or we read parts of the Gospels, and we see that he had a huge crowd of people following him, and we forget that the reason they were following him wasn't because they believed he was God. The reason they were following him is because he fed them. The reason they were following him is because he would heal their sick. That's why they were following him. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 2, it says that the crowds of people were following Jesus because of the many miracles he did. They had seen their loved ones get healed. They had seen demons cast out of people. So in John 6, verse 2, they're following him because he does miracles. And then in John 6, he takes the bread and the fish, and he breaks it, and he feeds 5,000-plus people on the hillside. And now they're following him the next day, not because he does miracles anymore, but because they get food from him. I want you to think about this, that the reason the people are following the God of the universe, the creator of mankind, the one who who spoke and universes popped into existence, the reason they're following him isn't because they believe he's God, isn't because they believe the oceans obey him, isn't because he hunts the food for the lion or feeds the ravens. The reason they're following him is because they want a bite to eat. They want to see if they can get another meal out of this guy. That's why they're following him. And then Jesus stands up in front of him in John chapter 6, and he says basically this, unless you believe in me, unless you, he says, unless you partake of me, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he goes, unless you, you take everything that I am, you don't have any part of me. In other words, Jesus says, if you're just here for the free food and the free stuff, if you're just here for Jesus swag, right? Stuff we all get, that kind of thing. If you're just here for the Jesus swag, you don't get any part of me. And the people go, wow, that's a little bit too harsh. It's a little bit too much. And the Bible says that at that point, all of them left them, except for the 12 disciples. Everybody says, we're out. We're not here for that. We're just here for the free stuff. And, and so... When it says here that he was despised, when it says here he was the kind of person that men hide their faces from, that they had no, they, they didn't esteem him, they, they didn't consider him like worthy of honor, this isn't hyperbole. This isn't exaggeration. They, they really, it's why they said, whoa, whoa, you're just Mary and Joseph's son. When he started preaching truth to them about who he was as God, no, 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 we know you. We watched you grow up. Tender shoot, right? In the desert. Ugly kid, right? Nondescript. Nothing fancy about you. We know you. We know your mother. We know your father. And they didn't esteem him at all. Which proves further what I said earlier about 52.13, that for him to be high and lifted up has nothing to do with his reputation and everything to do with his position on the cross. Jesus wasn't a person of reputation. Listen, I, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but Jesus is still of no reputation outside the church. He's not. It's those of us who know him as God. It's those of us who know him as Savior that, that hold him in high regard, that hold him in high esteem. The world doesn't. 
His position among mankind hasn't shifted, except for those of us who say, man, we know who he is. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Let me, let me, just, let me just try to help you really quickly here with the pronouns. He has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. If you grew up in and around church, it's not likely that you think, uh, well, let me say this differently. Jesus says in John 14, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I and the Father are one. In John 17, he talks about the unity he has and that he shares with the Father. When we come to know God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we see how they're connected and how they're not broken and how they, they share glory and they share power and they share this honor and this praise and this worship, when we see that, none of us are going to say, man, God must hate him. We're, we don't say that about Jesus. So when it says here, we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted, what people were saying about Jesus, particularly as he went to the cross, is they're saying, man, God doesn't like him. God's mad at him. That's what they were saying about Jesus. Keep this in mind. That, that Isaiah's writing to Jews here. So the we, the our here is from a Jewish perspective. The Jews considered him smitten by God. The Jews considered him afflicted by God. The Jews didn't esteem him. You and I esteem Jesus. It's why you're here Sunday morning. It's why you're here with COVID cases skyrocketing and hunting and football games and all other sorts. Like, you're here because you esteem him. This is not a commentary on those who are not here, so don't take it that way. But like the people who have been coming over the last 10 months, the reason you come, the reason you worship, the reason we are doing this together is because we esteem him. So sometimes a preacher gets up and says, uh, we esteemed him stricken by God. We esteemed him afflicted, afflicted by God. We don't think that. We don't think that Jesus was hated by God. We say that, man, they are one and the same. And so read the pronouns in this chapter as though it's from a Jewish perspective. Verse, verse 5 says this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we were healed, or by his stripes we were healed. You'll have, uh, you'll have people every now and then who will get up and say, See, Isaiah 53.5 says, By his wounds we were healed, therefore no one should ever get sick. By that logic, Micah shouldn't have been sick a couple of weeks ago, and Micah's dad shouldn't have been sick, and Shane shouldn't be sick now. And, and by that logic, not a single Christian should ever be sick ever. And then apparently, I don't know, we never die of anything uh, because our bodies just can't fail, right? Like we're just impervious to it. We're like superhuman or something. But, but let me remember a little bit ago, hopefully so. It was just a couple of minutes ago. But do you remember a few minutes ago I said that in Matthew – the, the Bible says he did this to fulfill the scripture, according to the scripture. Uh, he died according to the scripture. And so in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is hanging out with Peter. And they are all at Peter's house. Jesus and the apostles are all at Peter's house. And Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And she has a high fever. And Jesus goes over to her and he touches her. And the fever leaves her. And Peter's mother-in-law gets up and starts cooking for everybody. And people hear about it. And they start bringing all their sick to the house. And they start knocking on the door. And they show up at Peter's house. And everybody who's sick and everybody who has a demon and everybody who has a fever and everybody who has any kind of issue comes to the house. And Jesus is healing every single person that comes to the house. And then Matthew says in Matthew chapter 8, 
This was to fulfill what the prophet said, he's carried our diseases. See, the reason that Jesus healed all these Jewish people in the middle of his ministry, his public ministry, was to fulfill this scripture right here in Isaiah 53, 5, so they'd believe him. One of the prophecies of scripture said that he would carry our diseases, he would carry our sicknesses, and Jesus did that. No one else was healing sickness. No one else was curing diseases. And the Bible said that the Savior would do that. So Jesus shows up and starts doing that so that they would go, oh, hey, you're the guy. Oh, hey, you're the one who's supposed to heal us. Oh, you're the one who's supposed to save us. But they didn't. Why? Because they had no regard for him. I mean, come on, we know your mom and dad. Come on, you don't really look like a king. Come on, we watched you grow up. Come on, man, you're not that impressive. And so they didn't esteem him at all. And so they missed stuff like this, where he's healing their diseases. Verse 6 says this, We all like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned our own way. But the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. So, so Jesus, verse 7, is talking about Jesus going to the cross. He was oppressed and afflicted, but opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not its mouth. And, and so Jesus did not resist going to the cross. That's what this is telling us. As Jesus was taken away to the cross, as he was despised and rejected, headed to the cross, he didn't do it with, uh, with offense. He didn't, do it, he didn't do it trying to justify himself. He didn't do it trying to escape it. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he would be cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the, sacred, uh, stricken for the transgressions of my people? This is a really interesting verse. So he was taken away by oppression and judgment. It's uh, why the Jews crucified him. They were oppressing Jesus. They were judging Jesus. And it, and it says, as for his generation, who would consider that he'd be cut off from the land of the living? It's an interesting idea because the Jews were looking for a king. They were looking for a savior, but they were looking for a king who would be on the throne and then have a son who would be on the throne and then have a son who would be on the throne who would bring back the line of David. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for a, a king who would come. And when, the, when, when they read, when they heard the scripture say that his kingdom would never end, what they thought it meant was descendants. His kingdom would never end. And so Isaiah says, who would have ever considered... Who would have ever thought of the generations of the Savior that he'd be cut off from the land of the living? In other words, if you had told the Jews a Savior's coming, they'd say, we agree. If you had told the Jews a king is coming, they'd say, we agree. If you, if you had told the Jews his kingdom will never have an end, they'd say, I agree. And, if you, and then if you told them, and he's going to die and never have any kids, they'd go, whoa, <laughs> how does that work? We're, we're going to have a king, yes, agree. He's going to save us. He's going to protect us. His kingdom will never have an end. Right. And in their mind, the only way that was going to work is if the king had a family. And then that family had a family. And then that family had a family. I'll tell you something. I'm kind of stupid like the Israelites in that way. Um, when, when Micah and I and Pierce were, were doing this, in fact, Pierce posted a picture this past week. We're, this week, a year ago, we were pouring that countertop back there and doing the coffee bar, and Micah was doing all that work. But about two weeks before that, we had knocked out a couple of walls, and initially, the coffee bar was supposed to be small. And where Cammie's sitting back there, there was supposed to be a little small coffee bar right there. And that back room was still going to be like a Sunday school room, or we are going to use it for something else. And, uh, and we got talking about it. Yeah, I know, something else. 
we got talking about it, and I said, we said, what if we just knocked out that back wall and made the coffee bar really long? And Micah goes, that sounds great. And so the next day we came in here, we were starting to do all that. We were going to tear it down. And I asked some questions, and I was like, yeah, so how are we going to work this now? And how are we going to work? And all the questions I was asking were based off of our previous plan. And Micah finally stopped me, and he goes, stop. He goes, you're thinking about it in one way. You're thinking about it how we talked about it last week and the week before. We've changed our plans. We're doing it differently. You've got to think about it in a different way. And it took me, I was like, I can't. And he was like, stop. Quit trying to think about it in one way. And so Micah has to do that to me probably every other month or so. Quit, Ryan. That was a good idea we had, but we're changing it. Quit thinking about it in the old way of thinking about it. Think about it in the new way of thinking about it. Okay, yeah, I'm with you now. And it takes my mind like a year and a half to catch up, right? Whereas Micah can do it really quickly. The Israelites are going, we're going to have a king. Yes, you're going to have a king. The prophet said, your king's going to reign forever. Yes, our king's going to reign forever. He's going to be a benevolent king, a merciful king. Yes, yes, I'm with you. I got all that. And then Isaiah, the prophet says, and he's going to die and never have any kids. And you're like, whoa, how does that work? How do we have a king who reigns forever who doesn't have any kids? Who would have considered, Isaiah said, that his generations would be cut off, that he'd be cut off from the land of the living? Who would have thought that in order for the king to reign forever, in order for the king to save for all kind, that the king would have to die? Who would have thought that? No one. By oppression and judgment, verse 8 again, he was taken away. And as for his generations, who would have ever thought he'd be cut off from the land of the living? Verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked. Think of the two thieves that were hung on either side of him. With a rich man in his death, Joseph from Arimathea uh, gave his tomb to Jesus. A rich man gave his tomb to Jesus. And Jesus had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He put Jesus to grief. I'm adding Jesus in there for the pronouns just to give you a little bit of explanation. When his soul, when Jesus' soul makes an offering for sin, then he sees his offspring and prolongs his days. This is so beautiful. Verse 8 tells us that the Savior will have no physical descendants, that he's going to die. But then verse 10 tells us that when he has died for us and borne our sin, that we become his offspring. You and I are the children of God because of the death of Christ. You and I, through faith in God, or faith in Jesus, the work of God through Christ, we have become the offspring of God. We have become his descendants. Who would have thought that the king eternal would have been cut off from this generation? Who would have thought that the only way he could have offspring is to die first? And then he bought us for himself. And now you and I are children of God through faith. Listen to verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul... Make no mistake about the anguish that Jesus went through. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Man, isn't that a blessing? Isn't that a blessing that Jesus, looking uh, at the anguish he's facing on the cross, the death that he faced, that he is satisfied in that. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, the servant, the high and lifted one, high and exalted one, by his knowledge shall the righteous servant make many to be counted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. You and I, we've talked about this for 10 months. You and I are righteous, not because of our works, but because of the works of Jesus. You and I are righteous because of the righteous king, because of the righteous servant who is high and lifted up for us. And he sees that, and he's satisfied with it. And then verse 12, verse 12 is Jesus' second coming. Verse 12 is what we are all waiting for, what all of our hope is in, what all of our longing is for. And it says, therefore, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, 
and he will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Catch this. I will, God says, I will divide him, Christ, a portion with the many, and then he will divide the spoil with the strong. You and I, you and I who have put faith in Christ, we are the many, we are the strong. We are the ones that God hands the inheritance to Christ and divides the inheritance between Christ and us. We are the ones who inherit what Christ inherits. Paul says so in Romans chapter 8. He says that, that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided we also suffer with him. You and I receive the inheritance that God passes on to Jesus and then Jesus gives to us. We receive that inheritance. We receive that blessing. So here's this prophecy of Scripture, 15 verses long, that talk about everything about Christ, everything you would need to know about Christ. Uh, well, there's so much more we could know. But in terms of who he was, his death, his resurrection, his coming again, that this is who Christ is, that we have been saved through him. And so that brings us to our application. We can trust that Jesus is the promised Savior. We can trust that Jesus is the promised Savior because he was born in Bethlehem. We can trust that Jesus is the promised Savior because he was raised in Nazareth and the prophecies 700, 800, 1,000 years before him said that that's what would happen. We can trust that he is uh, the Savior because he healed the sick. He cast out demons. We can trust that he's the Savior because he died for us and not just that he died, but how he died, which is also written out for us in Scripture. In Psalm 22, it gives almost a word-by-word account of how he died on the cross, that his hands were pierced, that his feet was pierced, that his shoulders were dislocated, that his heart melted within him like wax. And you can imagine them piercing the side of Jesus with a spear. All of these things, we can look at every single prophecy pertaining to Christ's birth, pertaining to his life, pertaining to his death, pertaining to his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. We can look at every single one of those prophecies and see that Jesus fulfilled every single one of them to the letter. Every single one of them to the letter. There are only a handful of prophecies in the Bible that Christ has not yet fulfilled, and they all pertain to him coming again. His, his second coming, the day that the kingdom of heaven begins, the day that we stand before God in eternity, all of those are the prophecies that are left undone. And I just want to leave you with this thought for a moment. If Christ fulfilled every prophecy about his birth to the letter, if Christ fulfilled every prophecy about his ministry to the letter, if Christ fulfilled every prophecy about his death and his resurrection to the letter, we can know with confidence he will fulfill every prophecy about his coming to the letter. When people say to me, how can you be so sure Jesus is coming back? Literally, literally I can say because of where he was born, because of where he was raised, because of how he died, because he died between two thieves, because he was buried in a borrowed grave, because he refused wine vinegar, because he took wine later, because his shoulders were dislocated, because every single component, every single bit of it, I see every single prophecy about Christ fulfilled in Christ. And I know with confidence then that all the prophecies pertaining to his return will also be fulfilled by him. How, how could I doubt it? How could I be shaken by it? And so what we'd look at is we look at these prophecies about Jesus, and I'd love to talk to you some more about them Wednesday night or any time that you have time. When we look at these prophecies, we know that we are confident and safe in him. I want to leave one last prophecy about Jesus with you. It's from Isaiah 42. It's a beautiful text. It's quoted about Jesus in the New Testament as well. 
And Isaiah 42, one through four says this, behold my servant, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring, bring justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or raise his voice. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not put out. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Listen, we sing about it. We've, uh, Micah, I can't remember what song it is, but Micah wrote a chorus for a song that we've been singing for years and years and years. And, and in, in the chorus or the part that Micah wrote, he says, you're a God of justice, a God of wrath, a God of love and mercy, one. Um, and I don't know if I have that in the right order, but along those lines. And, and, and it, it is true. Hear me say this. God will pour out his wrath. That's true. God will pour out his wrath on those who have rejected him. But for too long, preachers have stood up in front of people and said, be afraid of God's wrath, get saved. And they use the wrath as a motivating factor in their mind to bring people to God. Listen to what this text says. Listen to what this text says about our Savior. Listen to what this text says about our King. It says this, He will not cry aloud. He will not raise His voice. A bruised reed He will not break. A faintly burning wick He will not put out. I want you to hear the heart of our King. Okay? Instead of yelling and sweating and pounding a pulpit and saying, you're all going to die, you better get saved. Jesus doesn't raise his voice like that. He beckons us with kindness. In fact, in Hosea chapter 2, a prophecy of who God is, it says that he woos us. He speaks tenderly to the people and he brings, the, he brings rebellious Israel back to him by speaking kindly to them. This idea here of a bruised reed he will not break. I, I don't know if this is something that will make sense to you or not. I hope it will a little bit. My dad was raised in Oregon, and when we would spend summers up in Oregon visiting his family, they had this creek that would kind of run through the property, and there was probably like an acre of cattails in this creek, just tall six-foot cattails that we would go play in as kids. My dad said that when they were kids, they would cut trails through them, and they would hide, play hide-and-seek in them. We never did that, but I do remember, uh, I do remember my dad fashioning me uh, a bow out of like a sapling and a string, and then we would shoot the cattails. We'd like fire the cattails like arrows, and it was so much stinking fun. But these, these cattails, these beautiful tall cattails in this creek in eastern Oregon, Baker City, if anybody knows where that is, uh, the, these cattails were beautiful and strong, but if you pinched it, if you pinched the stalk and you bruised it, you know, you broke it a little bit, it would fall over, and now it's dead. Now it's going to die, Right? But that, that's this image, like that, that cattail, you're not going to be able to make it stand back up again. Does that make sense? You're not going to be able to make it stand erect again if you, if you go in and you pinch it and you break it. It'll just flop over. Because the, the outer shell of the stalk, you could, break, you could break the inside of the stalk without breaking the outside of the stalk, and it would just collapse. It would just fall over. And so here's this idea. Here's a, here's a stalk that's bruised that, that, man, if you just apply a little bit of pressure, it's done for. It's going to fall over. And it says a bruised reed Christ won't break. Anybody in here ever felt like, man, you're just kind of at the edge of yourself? You just felt like just a little bit more pressure and you're going to break? Here's the good news for you. Let me back up one statement. Anybody in here ever felt like if you came to God, he's just going to yell at you? He's just going to be mad at you for how you've behaved. Anybody ever felt like, man, you're just on the edge, just barely on the edge of being broken? What's the third statement? A faintly burning wick he won't put out. Anybody in here ever feel like your light, your faith, your whatever is just barely hanging on? I need you to know something about our Savior and our King. 
He doesn't raise his voice or cry out. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't put out the faintly burning wick. That in Christ there is grace, there is love, there is acceptance, there is mercy, there is compassion, there is empathy. This is the king we serve. This is the king we've been invited to. This is the God we serve, and we can put all of our faith and all of our confidence in this God and this Jesus. We can trust that Jesus is the promised Savior, and not only that he is the promised Savior, but that he is a gracious promised Savior. Some of us just need mercy today, just need a little bit more compassion today, and that's the kind of, this, listen, if I were to say to you, and if I, if I took an hour and I showed you all the Old Testament references and all the New Testament references where they were fulfilled, and that would just be doing it at a breakneck pace, and you're like, okay, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus were fulfilled in Jesus. And then I took you to this one, Isaiah 42. For whatever reason, people have a harder time with this than they do, he'll be born in Bethlehem, he'll be raised in Nazareth, he won't be good looking, he'll die on a cross. All of these little facts, these little kind of hard, you know, facts, these tangible truths. And then you get to the intangible, by the way, he's compassionate. By the way, he won't break you. By the way, he won't put you out. People have a harder time believing that because people have a hard time believing they're worthy of grace, that they're worthy of compassion. And I am here to tell you that that is the nature of the king that we serve. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And that's what you've been invited to and beckoned to. And I will say this, if you have never put your faith in Jesus, then we should talk because there is grace enough for you. No one is beyond the grace of Christ. Let's spend a little bit of time in prayer this morning, and here's our prayer, where we're going to start at least. God, we thank you for the salvation you provide in Jesus. God, we thank you for the salvation you provide in Jesus. Would you take just a moment, right where you are, to thank God for the promised Savior, for the promised King, for Jesus? Take a moment just right where you are to thank God that salvation has been granted to us through Jesus Christ. As we continue in prayer, would you take a moment this morning to thank God uh, that we have a compassionate and gracious King?
Finally, this morning, would you take a moment and would you ask that God would help you to put all of your confidence in Christ's return? Just as Christ has fulfilled every other prophecy, so he'll also fulfill his return. He will come back. We will stand before him. We will be declared righteous and holy. Take a moment. Ask God to help you to put all your confidence in that.